This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning in the cloud out there. This is the second to last full day of Sashin, and it's the last uh, day that I'm giving a talk. So one last bite of Kazan. Um, as we saw yesterday, those of you who were here yesterday, Kazan really packs in these very specific suggestions and instructions on various aspects of zazen, things that might arise in your sitting or in your experience in ways that Dogen kind of hints at, but he doesn't go into these specifics, these particular states of body-mind that may arise. And um, although some of his suggestions for what to do or things to try um, maybe sound a little, you know, like, oh, that would never work. Uh, <laughs> I encourage you to try them. It's, it's his compassionate mind that is suggesting them. But at last, uh, in the last few pages, he takes up a, a central keyword or phrase from Dogen's Fukan Sazengi, which is not original with Dogen, but it, the phrase, but it is still kind of fundamental to Dogen's teaching. So Kezan says, and this is um, the translation that I just happen to be using, Kezan says, now think of what is without thought. How can you think of it? And his answer is, be before thinking. This is the essence of zazen. Shatter obstacles and become intimate with awakening awareness. Awakening awareness. I think that verb is an interesting choice of the translator uh, or translators, right? Not awakened awareness where it's happened and it's complete, right? And it's, it's um, effects are continuing. That's a kind of perfect tense. Awakening, you know, is a process. It's ongoing and it's, it's actively affecting other things. Awakening awareness, right? That's a, this aliveness is a, something that he's, that characterizes his attitudes, I think. Kazan's attitudes. So, for those of you who took the class, our discussion a month or more ago now um, of this phrase, how can you think of not thinking in Dogen? Non-thinking, right? So there are all these different, slightly, slightly varied English expressions that we try, we try out, which is not really an exact translation of the Japanese, but it's an attempt to try to provide some kind of lens through which to understand what these teachers are talking about. So Dogen uses this phrase, he shiryo, he shiryo in Japanese, right? And as Cohen Franz says in a helpful discussion about this too, you know, this is thinking, this is not your usual thinking. It's not just any everyday thinking. It's the thinking that measures and that, that judges that says, this is big, this is small, this is good, this is bad, right? So you can see why Kazan would be all over this, because that's what he's been talking about for pages, 
right? To be beyond dichotomies and dualities like those. So Dogen says, think not thinking. How do you think not thinking? And one translation of his answer is non-thinking, right? And uh, according to our translation, Kazan says, before thinking, right? Non-thinking, or in this case, uh, in, in uh, Kazan's case, before thinking. Um, Kaz Tanahashi suggests that uh, for Dogen, instead of non-thinking, we say beyond thinking, right? So trying to break down boundaries um, and kind of mess with our ideas of this and that, what's before, what's after, what's not, what's non, right? Um, this is the essential art of zazen, says Dogen, to think non-thinking. <laughs> um, Kazan says, think of that which is without thought. Are you without thought? I'm not. <laughs> think of that which is without thought. And to do it, he says, is to be before thinking. Dogen says, beyond thinking. Um, Or that's a possible translation. I don't think any of these phrases in English are disagreeing with each other, right? Things like that we get hung up on, like an exact time before or a space beyond really aren't issues, right? Before, we could say, is before differentiation, into this and that, or we could say, after differentiation, bring them back together. I don't think any of that really matters so much. It's not so much of an issue. This just points to direct experience without measure or comparison. A little later in his suggestions about working with sleepiness or dullness, Kazan suggests, and I like this, standing up and walking clockwise, which is exactly what we do when we do Kenyan, right? And he predicts that you won't be sleepy anymore after a hundred steps. We don't get anywhere near a hundred steps in our ten minutes of of Kenyan. He says, the way to take a half, the way to walk, he uses this example, it's a very, you know, concrete example. If you're sleepy, get up and and do Kenyan. And then he says, the way to walk is to take a half step with each breath, right? That's the instruction that we give, which is not a really natural way of walking. Then he says, walk without walking. Think non-thinking, walk without walking. Silent, fine, silent and unmoving. Walk without moving, (laughs) right? So this is a concrete example of activity that is zazen, that is non-doing, right? Um, Walking silent and unmoving, that seems to be somehow related to beyond thinking and also before thinking, right? To walk without moving. In Genjo Koan, Dogen says, fish swim, birds fly, right? one with their elements, not separate from their activity or their elements, right? They are, um, you know, and this is beyond just losing some small self in activity. Sometimes people say, you know, when I sink a jump shot or I center clay, 
you know, on a, on a wheel and it, it's perfect. Then they feel like I am one with my activity. I have vanished in my activity. The small self has disappeared and I'm just the activity. But this goes just to think a little bit beyond that. It's activity is life itself. It is life force blooming. It is aliveness. It's awakening awareness. So it's not just like merging some small self, which is going to just reappear in a few minutes or at the next moment. Right? It's not that evanescent and phenomenal. It's more like there's no space for anything except aliveness. His final suggestion is a teaching about original nature, which of course is how he began, began the very first sentence of uh, Zazen Yojinki. And this is a rather arresting uh, language that he uses. He says, if scattering continues, right, you're still distracted, your, your attention is scattered. He says, sit and look to that point where breath ends. He's told us about what to do with our breath a number of times. Harmonize body and breath, breathe a couple times through your mouth, right, then breathe through your nose and your breath will, you know. He says, sit and look to that point where the breath ends and the eyes close forever. And where the child is not yet conceived, where not a single concept can be produced. When a sense of the twofold emptiness of self and things appears, scattering will surely rest. That's the quote. Uh, he says, arising from stillness, so when we get up finally from Zazen, carry out activities without hesitation. This moment is the koan. And I think this is the same koan as Dogen talks about in Genjo koan. We're not talking about these teaching stories in collections like the Blue Cliff Record or uh, you know, other, uh, the Gateless Gate, and there are other collections as well. This is this koan that is what's right before you. What is this? Right, that's the only case. Right. Kazan says, when practice and realization are without complexity, without complexity, then the koan is this present moment. Right? And this is Dogen's teaching of practice and realization are not two things. One doesn't lead to the other. Right? Without complexity, they, just this then the koan is just this present moment. Right? Vintage Dogen and, elab well, not elaborated, I hate to use that word in this context, but unpacked a little bit more by, by his successor, Kazan. And he says, that which is before any trace arises, that which is the scenery on the other side of time's destruction, the activity of all Buddhas and awakened ancestors is just this one thing, right? What's right in front of you? And then he has these closing, this is the last words of the whole essay. He says, you should just rest and cease. Be cooled. Pass numberless years as this moment. Right? I think that is the scenery on the other side of time's destruction. 
pass numberless years as this moment, be cold ashes, a withered tree, an incense burner in an abandoned temple, a piece of unstained silk. This is my earnest wish. So, how do you understand this? He comes up with all these very concrete images of specific things in specific settings. What do you think he's pointing to? They're all hiding except for Ernest. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. I think he's Rich. talking about um, abandoning attachment to the arising of, uh, or the clinging to desires. Like, uh, typically we have discursive thoughts about, I, I want this, and I'm going to go get this, I'm going to get in my car and go get it. And that's sort of the normal pattern of our thoughts. You know, the sort of, like, I'm going to go from here to there and get something. Mm-hmm. But if you are sort of driven by goals and gaining mind, mm-hmm. you will be kind of trapped in discursive thinking. And it limits your ability to see the fullness of existence, right? It's, it's a very narrow picture or view of the world. And dropping that allows you to see everything in its completeness and its wholeness as opposed to like something from the small self viewing the world discursively like I like this and I don't like that but this is about like letting abandoning attachment to all that to the arising of desires and clinging to them and just be with what is does that make sense? yeah I think that I think that is included in what he's talking about right that that which is before any trace arises right, is just this one thing rest and cease sounds very uh, much like the earliest teachings right, to um, sometimes the word that's used uh, in English is extinction or extinguishing extinguishing desires or extinction of cessation, cessation which freaks out a lot of people because it, it sounds really kind of uh, well, it sounds dead, and what we're talking about is aliveness, <laughs> right? How can this be aliveness? Well, if, if I may, um, I think for this to work, I mean, we have to be willing to let the part of us that is identified with our goals to die. We have to say, that one who wants to get in his car and go get pizza or something is going to die. The one who wants to go and get enlightenment who needs wants, to die. You know, who wants some, something out there, some object out there That's right. has to die, because the but, one who's... But, I, that, but, I'm, what I'm trying yeah. to say is I think he's pointing at something so that, so that your suggestion, which I think is part of this is to let go of you know, one's concerns with one's apparent and, elus- and actually uh, <laughs> non-existent small self right? mm-hmm. but also that small self can be the one that wants and that wants to wake up or that wants something that they think is waking up, right? Mm-hmm. Some, mm-hmm. So it's, it, I think it's, it, it's, it's even bigger than the project you're talking about, which is fundamental, which is fundamental, right? Anyone else? Yeah. I feel like it's no activity. It's, there's all these things. There's a tree that's withered, so it's no longer growing. There's an incensor that's not 
in an abandoned temple. So there's no activity, there's no schedule that's bringing fire to it and it's doing its thing. But they are still all their thing. Um, but they've died. And then the, the last one, the undyed silk, I feel like it's bringing it back around to potential again. So the silk could could become dyed or become used or... Um, but maybe that's a reference to, like, forgotten silk. I think unstained, usually when you hear that word in, in a Zen context, it means, you know, when we say unstained, um, it usually means undivided or, you know, non-dual, right? So it's not about cleanliness or about... I mean, I suppose you could say it's, it's, silk does have the ability to take on color, but we don't even know what color this silk is. I see white in my mind when I hear this phrase, but it doesn't say white silk. It just says a piece of unstained silk, right? So undifferentiated silk, silk that has no particular characteristic. Could be bright red with a water stain on it, <laughs> right? Be unstained means not, you know, not divided. Other? Chico. Hmm? Chico has a question. Oh, Chico, hello. hello. You can't see over my glasses. Hello. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, uh, it really reminded me of something that uh, happened two days ago where I was um, realizing that I feel like all through Zazen has always been like trying to pay attention and um, something happened where I like stopped trying to pay attention uh, and and then it like happened on its own and it kind of, so this really spoke to me I really like the the uh, incense burner in the abandoned temple it's like somehow even the, the this effort of like back to breath whatever back to you know away from thought back to breath back to attention is still this sort of uh, yearning or whatever, uh, too much trying. Uh, so this me of that. Yeah, there's um, uh, there's also the the image of a of uh, and I think Suzuki Roshi used this um, of your activity burning out completely, burning completely clean. There's no, it's just ash, which ultimately cools off, right? When it no longer has fuel, it's just ash. And of course, that brings up Genjo Koan, right, about the firewood. And the ash, right? so all these things. It's, I think it's very interesting. These picks these specific objects, all of which have you know, the, the the withered tree that comes up in koans, um, a dragon howling in a withered tree. <laughs> that's a that's actually a koan, um, an incense burner in an abandoned temple. So what's the abandoned temple about? Yeah, Sandra, or uh, whatever you to want me, to say. And maybe it's because I'm old and I think about this, but it sounds like he's talking about the preciousness of life in the moment because he's talking about being sleepy and all these things and struggling. But, you know, if you're thinking about the last breath and the preciousness and impermanence of life, um, you know, that kind of wakes you up to the moment. Yeah, there are a couple of places where, you know, don't waste this life comes up right. in all these teachings. Frequently it comes up. Um, remember that just before this, he's talking about scattering, right? It's, you think you're going to get another hint about how to deal with being sleepy or scattered or whatever. But he says, right, sit and look to that point where the breath ends, right, where you're cold ash. <laughs> you can take it this way, right? And the eyes close forever, 
and where the child is not yet conceived. So the two ends of what we think of as a beginning and an end, right? Which actually don't exist, right? No birth, no death, right? They're not real. We call them these things, but he's still pointing to them. Where the child is not yet conceived and where not a single concept can be produced. So before differentiation, it's all before differentiation. What is that point? Beyond what you think is death, beyond what you think is birth. Awareness. Awareness and this moment, which is the closest thing that Buddhists get to talking about eternity or forever. Right? Um, when a sense of the twofold emptiness of self and things, right? Self and things appears, back to scattering. Scattering will surely rest, right? What's to scatter? <laughs> um, yeah, I think the incense burner in an abandoned temple for me, because every time I see an incense burner, I always look and say, has that been cheated? You know, is there any ash in there? Does that need to be cleaned up? It's like an abandoned temple means nobody's visiting. Ain't nobody coming and going, right? And the incense burner has served its function, and it's just itself sitting there, right? Um, and you don't need the temple anymore, Right? Fundamentally, or everything is the temple. All activity, you, have to, you can't not do something, right? We're always active. But activity is burned out. It's, it, it burns clean. It leaves no trace. And it's based in carrying out these activities without hesitation, without complication, just doing, right? With zazen at the, at the base of it. And I, I find this hilarious in some ways because, you know, we've spent a lot of this retreat getting instruction about, no, hold the incense this way. No, hold the Buddha tray that way. No, step with this foot. No, you know, bring the gamashu in now and not then. Don't hit the clappers yet. What are you doing? You know, seems like really complicated. But most of that is just trying to keep us in the present moment. And I had this moment yesterday where I had no idea what day it was. I had no idea what time it was. It was just like, time for service, a bell rang, and I moved, right? There wasn't any thinking. I had no energy left for thinking. <laughs> None, <laughs> right? And I also found myself trying to sprinkle chip incense on uh, a piece of charcoal that had burned out was from the last service. It was like, mm, what, something's wrong. Oh, nope, I don't need to do this right now, you know? You, it's just like merging with that activity. You have to have some awareness of what you're doing but, you know, like there's a script that your body-mind follows, right? It's, and I made a couple of mistakes yesterday, and I was like, leave it behind, right? Just keep going. Okay. I think some of you have heard me talk about the moon as a symbol of enlightenment. Um, I talked about this in the Genjo Koan talk of our weekend retreat, the second talk, I think. And um, I think this has something to do with what we're hearing here, too. Um, and this, again, is a comment by Koan, and I really highly recommend all six of his kind of short talks about um, this teaching of Kazan, and you will see, if you read them, how much I've relied on them in what I'm telling you. A lot of it has been Koan, sort of, you know, as, as I understand what Koan's saying. So this is about being a person of uh, no... We sometimes say a, a true person of no rank or a true person of no position, a person without reference points, right? He's, and that's like a person who is free, completely free. He says, you can only have a location. 
you can only have a reference point if you're distinct and if you're separate. Right? And, and he elsewhere talks about this reference point is the you, the small self, that has a name, right? Choro or Elliot or whoever, right? right? He's, he's not talking about the... He's saying that if you don't have that reference point, then you are the true person of no position. Right? And he says, the moon has been a useful tool for talking about form and emptiness, or absolute and relative. Right? The moon, though, is always full, and, you, and yet it's useful for us who are tracking and figured out, you know, I can track the phases of the moon and figure out where we, I can construct a calendar and I can, you know, like all that, right? But the moon is actually always full. But it's useful to say that it's not, right? That it's always in flux, that it's always changing. And we can see that. We like to have reference points. He also says, the moon shines. It looks like it's shining to us, but not really. It's not like the sun producing light and energy and heat. It doesn't really shine. It just reflects something, something bigger. He says, we have all sorts of stories about the moon. We look up and we say, oh, it's at this stage, or it's at that stage. In the same way, we look at our lives, and we imagine we're at this stage or that stage. I'm still young. Oh, now I'm in middle age. I can see my peak. (laughs) We can locate that moment in the past, some of us anyway. Or perhaps we can see that peak just around the corner. It's coming. Right? When I turn 30 or 40 or 50. <laughs> right? And he says, that's one way of looking at your life. But he says, there's another way of looking at it in which it's just full. Your life is just full. It's always full. And it can't be anything but that. And like the moon, it's not so much shining from within. It's made visible by the things around it. Right, the 10,000 things, the ph- the all phenomena are reflected in the moon or a dewdrop, and so on. And I was thinking about this uh, recently um, because we're coming up on the holidays and I'm going to see my uh, stepmother, uh, who is now 95 and has been bedbound for a year and, and is completely dependent on caregivers. This is a totally different person from the person that I met almost 50 years ago when she married my father. So my mother's moon appears to be waning, right? And everybody would say, oh, she's so, you know, she's a shadow of her former self. Oh, isn't it sad? You know, and, and it, it, she's not suffering particularly, so that's what leads me to say this. If she were really suffering in a lot of pain, I think I would feel differently, but Maybe not. You know, from this teaching, I feel, as I'm preparing to go see her, that, you know, rather than a waning crescent moon, she's entirely full. I mean, she is exactly who she is. It's my comparisons with some other mother that make me think, oh, look at this decline, right? Look at this different, look, isn't this terrible? She's just herself, right? And so are all of us, although we like to say, you know, I'm past my prime, (laughs) or I'm approaching my prime, right? It's always just you, just this moment. 
So I had kind of wanted to make this last talk short, a little short, but there's this wonderful essay written by uh, Zoketsu Norman Fisher. Some of you know his teaching. Um, he's one of our um, San Francisco Zen Center lineage teachers, former abbot of San Francisco Zen Center. And he has this great essay about mind. And um, I thought I would quote from him. This is kind of an extensive extract, so bear with me. I'm probably going to edit as I go. Because I touched on mind the other day as a Buddhist concept, shall we say. So this is what Norman says. He says, mind includes all the material world. It also includes the so-called transcendent world, which sounds odd, right? Um, we don't really, in Buddhism, we don't really think uh, of the transcendent. There isn't anything that transcends something else, right? There's no God. It's sort of like God talky. Right? He says, we are told that Buddhism is practical and down to earth, a human teaching for human beings. It's about calming and understanding the mind in order to put an end to suffering. He says, well, this is certainly true. And it's the dominant theme of early Buddhism. But in contemplating what mind is, later Mahayana Buddhist pundits, that's his word, pundits, <laughs> teased out huge and astounding implications embedded in the early teachings. So this is an example of how we say unfold the Dharma, right? It's not that early teachings are wrong. It's that as Buddhism is practiced and developed, it, is, it flowers. It, it unf I like the word unfolds. He says, they began by distinguishing two aspects of mind, and this should be familiar to you all by now, an absolute and a relative aspect of the mind. So like, you know, there's absolute and relative reality, and the mind is not an exception. These two uh, absolute and relative aspects, said the pundits, are both identical and not identical. So mind, not only in the abstract, but my mind, your mind, and the mind of all sentient beings is at the same time both transcendent and not. This is so Buddhist, okay. This means that the transcendence isn't a place or state of being elsewhere or otherwise, right? There's nowhere to go. <laughs> it is here and now. Mind and matter, space and time, animate and inanimate, imaginative and real, all are mind. Mind can be both absolute and phenomenal because it is empty of any hard and fast characteristics that could distinguish one thing from another. It is fluid. It neither exists nor doesn't exist. So, strictly speaking, it isn't impermanent. It's eternal. In effect, mind equals reality equals impermanence equals eternity. You follow that? <laughs> all of which is contained in the workings of my own mind and that of all sentient beings. So this little human life of mine, with all its petty dramas, as well as this seemingly limited and painful world, is in reality the playing out of something ineffably larger and grander. As Vasubandhu, the Indian Yogacara sage, writes in his famous 30 verses, reality is simply the transformations of mind. So then Norman goes on, he says, so we could pose the question like this, if my mind is mind and mind is reality, what is the relationship of my unenlightened mind? 
the cause of my suffering to the enlightened mind that puts suffering to an end. He says, from a psychological and logical point of view, enlightenment and unenlightenment are opposites. I am either enlightened and not suffering or unenlightened and suffering. And these certainly feel to me like vastly different states. But the teachings on mind assert that enlightenment and unenlightenment are actually not different. Right? Samsara and nirvana are the same thing, the flip side of the same thing, flip sides. They are fundamentally suchness, suchness. And the word fundamentally means at bottom, right, at the core. Suchness is a word coined in the Mahayana to connote the mind's perfect appearance as phenomena, right, the 10,000 things. That's the relationship of relative and absolute, right? Absolute, undifferentiated reality and the 10,000 things are not separate and not different on, you know, fundamentally. <laughs> when we receive phenomena as suchness, we don't experience what we call suffering, even if we suffer. He says, what we call suffering and experience as suffering isn't actually suffering. Why didn't somebody tell me? It is confusion, illusion, misperception, like seeing a snake that turns out to be merely a crooked stick. Suchness is the only thing we ever really experience. But since we mistake it for something painful and dangerous, we stand apart from it. So we separate from this reality. We see ourselves as its victim and so are pushed around by it, although in truth there is nothing that pushes, nothing that can be pushed, and no reason in the first place to feel pushed. Reality is not, as we imagine it to be, difficult and painful, according to these teachings. It is always only just as it is, suchness. Right. And he goes on for quite a long time about this. Um, then he has a little kind of parable. He says, a man is lost. He is confused about which way is north and which way is south. He has a place he is trying to go, but because of his confusion, he can't get there. He or she, I'll say she, feels disoriented and deeply uncomfortable. She has that sinking feeling of being lost, of not being in the place that she wants and ought to be. But then she suddenly realizes that there is actually no north or south, that these are just names people give to this way or that way, and that no matter where she is, she is in fact here, where she has always been and will always be. Immediately, that person no longer has a feeling of being lost. And he says, we are lost when we don't settle our lives in suchness, in reality. Misperceiving the wholeness of our mind, we see confusion and lack, which naturally gives rise to desire. We desire a destination that will bring us peace, but we don't know how to get there. We feel lost, ungrounded, desperate for road signs. So delusion is the place we are fleeing, and enlightenment is the destination, but it is a false destination. The path and all its teachings are like north and south, names for various directions that have some provisional value, but in the end only confuse us if we take them as real in a way that they are not. He says the entire culture of practice, including meditation, but also study, dharma relationships, ritual, and much more is necessary, but not in the way that we thought it was, not as a way to make things different. 
Rather, we practice to shift our understanding of our lives. To shift our understanding of our lives. So that is the last of Norman. So I want to conclude that the final words of Kazan, which sound so cold, (laughs) right? Cold ash, an abandoned temple, so grim, and which seems to advocate anything but aliveness and anything but awareness. Like, let's say them again. You should just rest and cease. Be cooled. Stop running. <laughs> Stop trying to find some other place. Pass numberless years as this moment. Be cold ashes, a withered tree, an incense burner in an abandoned temple, a piece of unstained silk or like the deep still water that is always there beneath the churn of phenomena, right? which is just the weather. So I say, do not think the apparent liveliness of fire is true activity. A withered tree is still suchness. An incense burner left in a temple no one visits has no meaning as a point of reference. Unstained silk and the full moon are pointing at completeness with nothing left out and no division into stages or ideas of clean and dirty. This is Kazan's wish, and uh, I wish it too. Thank you very much. And we, we do have time for a couple of questions or comments or objections. <laughs> I am too suffering. You can't tell me I'm not suffering. That might be an objection. Yeah, I've met. Um, I met. I like the moon as a um, as a symbol too. Um, I, I think the problem with words like wholeness and stuff like that for me is it, it starts looking like something I want. Mm. Um, same with enlightenment. <laughs> uh, so I, I like the moon because like it's it's clearly a a dead, separate object kind of floating in the sky. Mm. Um, and I think it's also a, a, a direct pointer, or it can be, um, to, uh, to before thinking. Um, in other words, uh, for me, it's like just being with my, my total separateness mm. is kind of a pointer to like what is actually experiencing um, on my seat, like, what is the seat of my experience? Um, so that, I think that's what it means to me. That's a way to rest. Is to is to find deep rest. And I've also been asking myself, like, what would it feel like to just rest <laughs> in my uh, experience, like naked experience? And just kind of asking that over and over again to myself um, to see if my body can sort of relax just a little bit more into my, like, the aloneness of my experience. And then um, out of that, sometimes it's like, oh, this is so wonderful to be with all these people doing the same thing. Um, so. Well, then you're illuminated like the moon by everything else. Yeah, that's what it, that's what the image is today. It's like, yeah, there's something illuminating the moon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the moon, the moon not having, you know, 
um, its own light, and we and it's also solitary, right? It, it's the yeah. thing that we really see, and it's the thing closest to us, um, unless there's some comet streaking through the sky. But it's you know it's always there. I love the fact that it's been there for thousands and thousands of years, just serenely, you know, uh, no matter what's going on down here, all the drama <laughs> here. The moon is up there. From our point of view, it's up there. Um, but, you know, this is also a metaphor for, uh, in our solitariness, we are also expressing and reflecting everything. Right? It's like, you're not truly, it, you can talk about solitariness without talking about separateness, is my proposal. Right? You're not actually separate. Right? You are one aspect of all things, but you are also at the same time all things. <laughs> you can't, even if you want to be separate, you can't be. Even when you're solitarily sitting on some mountain peak in the cold, you know, just with head covered, all things are at rest, says one of our sutras. Alone in your grass roof hut, you're not ever really alone. You can't escape. <laughs> yes, thank you, though. Thank you for your, for your comment. Yeah, Jess. Um, I. Uh... Yes, my Dharma name is Sincere Moon. Sincere Moon. Sincere Moon. Mm. And uh, I never have really understood the metaphor very well. Um, I thought it made sense. Like, yeah, well, everyone thinks it makes the, the name makes sense, but I've never quite grasped like the moon thing. And I never realized until today that it doesn't have its own light. And it's just there. And it gets illuminated when it, when it gets illuminated and like it's always ready um, for that. But it felt like a relief and the incense burner felt like a relief to me because it has no idea that it's the moon and it's just there like with this with this environment, but it's always ready to be an incense burner again when someone goes in the temple and lights the incense. And it was just like, what a relief. <laughs> I don't have to produce my own light, you know, because you guys can light me up when needed. Well, there's also a teaching that everyone is the light. Right, but it doesn't say you're on fire. <laughs> Although it says, practice as if your head were on fire. Kazan doesn't originate that, that phrase, but he does use that phrase, which is like the most important thing is, to, is practice, right? The most important thing is presence. It's manifesting, right? And the, uh, yeah, it's a great metaphor. You know, it's like if your hair is on fire, it's the only thing you're thinking about is right now, this fire. I gotta put I gotta put this out. Right. Yeah, it's very hard to be serene when your hair is on fire. So I, yeah, um, so what's your something getsu? Sincere. Say say. Say getsu. Say getsu. I'm sure people think, oh yeah, sincere, that's you. <laughs> and Full shining moon. That's you, but you know that's now you can practice with this name. Some sense of maybe what was behind that choice. Yeah. Mel. Why do you think the sun isn't mentioned, like, in the 
Yeah, I mean, there 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 are stories that mention the sun. There's a sun. There's a story about um, a teacher becomes sick and gets a visit and says, you know, so Roshi, how are you? And he says, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. So right, you know, they're twinned there, which is like saying, you know, I'm a I'm Buddha, whether hot or cold, sick or well, you know, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. So it's not like the sun is never invoked ever, but the moon is such a powerful symbol in. Zen, especially, you know, and Dogen uses it so eloquently, I think, but he's not the only one. Um, <clears throat> but I think in part because of this idea of being, it's like, you know, you don't reach out for the 10,000 things, the 10,000 things illuminate you. They, they come to you, and that's, you know, that's, a, that's enlightenment, right? So... The moon is a nice metaphor for that because, as we've said, it doesn't have its, it doesn't produce its own light. It is illuminated by everything else right, and reflects it back. And the moon is, you know, the full moon is round and ancient mirrors are round, right? So there's a, there's a whole very long, complex fascicle in Dogen about the ancient mirror. And that is us. It's like the jewel mirror samadhi, you know. The jeweled mirror is a round mirror, and it reflects everything without distortion. So this undistorted reality, right, which is what keeps us from, uh, which is what we're kind of hoping for. <laughs> Instead, we get the distorted reality that feels like awful. Right? <laughs> Look in the mirror and go, ooh. <laughs> yeah. And the undistorted reflection of reality, which just without discrimination, right? A mirror reflects, doesn't matter what appears in front of it. And when there's nothing in front of it, it's serene and alone, right? It's just there, waiting, right? It's when something appears in front of it that it just reflects it back. And this is also one of the keys to Sangha, why one, re- one reason why Sangha is such a, is one of the, th- the three jewels, right? We are all reflecting each other all the time, right? And sometimes we think, no, no, you know, you're doing this to me and I'm doing it. It's like, but it's also people are receiving what you're transmitting and they're reflecting it back to you. So, uh, yeah, we're all mirrors. Sometimes distorted mirrors, but we keep clarifying, we keep clarifying, clearing. And a mirror is, has infinite depth, too, right? There's no end to its depth. And it, if you start pairing mirrors, right, they you know, infinitely reflect each other. So the moon, the mirror, that's, those are related concepts. And I think the sun doesn't work quite the same way in this kind of imagining. You can look at the sun anyway. Just burn, just burn your eyes out. Yeah. It's like a massive fire. Yes, turning away and touching are both wrong. <laughs> yes, Rich. Can I ask you the question? Um, so, following up on that, would the sun be maybe awareness itself, like before, like and it's just it's just everywhere. It's not the sun is always shining, and it's all, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's sometimes the moon is full, sometimes the moon's in crescent, or sometimes it's a new moon and it's, it's not there. You don't see it, but it's still, it's still shining. Yeah, the, the sun, sun is also, even when it's visible, it's true. The sun doesn't go away. The sun right? doesn't disappear. The awareness still is there, is there no matter whether you're deluded or you're enlightened. Yeah, the earth is just turning. Um, the, uh, uh, was I just thinking when you said that? Sorry. Um, let me see if I can get it back. Sun, sun. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, the moon is reflecting the sun's light, right? It's, that's what it's reflecting. Right. We know that because we have astronomy. We mm-hmm. will to get yeah. out there and see and understand this. Ah, sorry. My, the Chinese probably so. understood it, too. I mean, they probably were yeah. great, great astronomers and understood what the, the movement of the sun and the moon were yeah. doing. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about how ancient this image is and our yeah. timekeeping is, um, how the moon has been, you know, kind of the original calendar. Let's see. Oh yeah, <clears throat> there's a there's a metaphor too that you know doesn't matter what's going on. There's there's the ocean right in the depth at the depth at the bottom of the ocean, everything is still and calm, and up top, who knows right? A tsunami, a, you know, a hurricane, a, something. There's weather. There's there are waves, right? But at the bottom, it's still, and um, the sun is there whether we see it or not. Right? It's somewhere, it's just that we don't see it. Um, so, you know, the, the thoughts are sometimes compared to clouds in the sky. The sky is still there, right? And the sun is still there, even if we don't see it. And um, I read some meditation instructions by a Tibetan teacher, very simple instructions that pointed out something that was, like, obvious, but, you know, I hadn't really noticed in this, in this clear way. He said, when the sun rises... It illuminates everything equally, right? It's just, you know, it doesn't choose where it's going to shine. And so everything is clarified by, by sunlight, right? Everything is illuminated by sunlight without discrimination. So it's not the mirror reflection idea, but it's a related idea, which is, you know, everything is equally illuminated because the sun doesn't discriminate, just like the moon reflects without discrimination. It just accepts the light that it gets. Um, and, you know, there may be shadows and places that the sunlight doesn't reach, but it's not because the sun is saying, I'm not going there, <laughs> right? The sun just, so, you know, when the sun rises or when we sit, if we don't push anything away, you know, then everything can shine, right? Anybody online with anything to say? There's a, a little poem, very short four lines that I wanted to read to you. This is Wendell Berry, and the poem is called To Know the Dark. It says, to go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. Thank you very much.